Hi, everyone. My name is Derek Shu. Welcome to the second episode of I Pledge Allegiance, a podcast where we explore the most interesting proposals, events, and discussions in on-chain governance. Today, I'm joined by Michael Shalov, the CEO of Fireblocks, and Roshan Patel, VP of Lending at Genesis. We discussed Fireblocks' recent Ave Arc proposal and the imminent launch of institutional pools within DeFi. We also chat about how institutions are participating in DeFi today, how this will change in the coming weeks and months, and the eventual downstream effects for the average user. Michael, Ro, it's great to have both of you on today. Before we get started, it'd be helpful for the audience to hear a bit about your backgrounds. Starting with you, Michael, could you give a quick intro about yourself and Fireblocks? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, Derek, thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Michael Shalov. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks. Um, so spent the first two decades of my career in, uh, in cybersecurity. Uh, so, uh, you know, mostly uh, building infrastructure for just, you know, uh, regular enterprises to protect themselves from uh, the threats on the internet. And um, in 2017, sort of jump into this uh, uh, space of uh, cryptocurrencies, um, actually somewhat by accident because we were, we were investigating a breach in South Korea where four exchanges got hacked and, you know, on the back of it sort of understood the, the lack of infrastructure and started Firebox. So uh, with the folks that are not familiar with Firebox, uh, what we build is uh, the market infrastructure for financial firms and generally speaking, uh, any institutions that is working with uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets. In the heart of our platform, we have uh, our uh, secure wallet infrastructure that is based on MPC technology. Um, you know, we have the Firebox network that uh, provides uh, B2B uh, institutional settlements, uh, sort of solving the operational uh, and complexity issues over there. And uh, um, as of the last 12 months, we've basically uh, moved quite aggressively into the DeFi space. And I think that we are probably the most uh, advanced prop platform right now for institutions to work with DeFi. And how is Firebox currently involved in DeFi? What kinds of capabilities do you guys support today? Yeah, so um, the, the interesting thing about DeFi when people think about it is that uh, you sort of need to interact with on-chain, right? So the traditional custodial models don't, don't really work uh, for that. And what you need is something that is quite new. And, and this idea around MPC technology at the base of the wallet or the base of the control over the, the private key is quite you know, uh, advantages when you work with DeFi. So what we build uh, to date is sort of um, a, ro a very robust access for institutions to, to access DeFi, um, starting from um, sort of built-in integration with some of the lending protocols where you sort of directly from RUI, you can, as an example, deposit into Compound and, uh, uh, um, if you have, let's say, you know, stablecoin or Ethereum. Uh, we've built integrations through a browser extension and Wallet Connect that uh, allow our clients to interact with any DeFi protocol whatsoever. And um, uh, then uh, on the back of it, we also have API-based access, which, which allows more programmatic or algorithmic access. Um, now, the really unique thing about our offering is that you have all the governance layers that uh, institutions need in terms of... Uh, who can, uh, uh, which contracts you can work with, what are the limits, who needs to approve it, things that are not available with the retail solutions that uh, were av available uh, before us. 
in the market. And it's sort of like, you know, a pretty significant uh, step function that really uh, brought in a lot of institutions to, to work with DeFi. So as of right now, we have a bit over 600 clients and uh, north to 100 of them are actually using Fireblocks to interact with DeFi. And, uh, you know, our plan is sort of to aggressively expand it. And, you know, hopefully we'll see more than 50% of the, our clients interacting with DeFi over the next 12 months. And Ro, could you talk a little bit about Genesis, how you're touching Fireblocks and DeFi today? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Um, it's an honor to be here. Uh, in such great company. Uh, I joined Genesis about, you know, four years ago um, to kind of help get the institutional lending desk started. Um, to keep brief on Genesis, we're basically an OTC trading desk um, with uh, now spot lending and derivatives businesses sitting next to our trading business. And um, we're part of Digital Currency Group, which is like a broader sort of uh, venture capital um, holding company type structure. And uh, yeah, my day-to-day -day kind of what I do is, you know, I manage a lot of our borrows, loans, uh, positions along the curve in various assets, optimize interest rates, structure deals and loans over the counter, uh, as well as uh, trade uh, derivatives, particularly nonlinear ones like, or sorry, linear ones like swaps and futures against client flow, and also to help like sort of manage our inventory because sometimes you want to borrow and lend or switch one asset to another without having to rely on OTC liquidity, which kind of ties into DeFi. I get, well, you know, we'll discuss that later. Um, and then also kind of like run a little bit lightly with some of the investments that we make uh, directly out of our trading desk. And we've been, uh, you know, long time fans of Fireblocks for quite some time. Um, in fact, I think we were probably one of the, maybe one of the earliest users. Uh, you know, we, we really do like the platform quite a bit in terms of the flexibility it offers us uh, to run like a, a lending desk out, out of the, the platform in the sense that it has the ability to, you know, break out wallets in really good ways and the MPC security underlying it all is great. And then, yeah, most recently, you know, we've done some uh, some small stuff with the the DeFi extension that, that Fireblocks has built, which is pretty um, interesting and robust, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like with lending OTC, it's like you have to, if you're, if you're only doing it in a purely OTC sense, you have to borrow and lend from various counterparties and like you have to rely on humans and other firms to interact with the market. What futures and derivatives do is it allow you to kind of like, uh, you know, trade Bitcoin for dollars or vice versa without having to rely on, um, you know, anything other than just a screen. So that's really nice. And then the third iteration of that is really just you know, using DeFi and, and pools and permission pools to be able to, to switch uh, inventory from one to another. So we're really excited about uh, kind of the growth there and being able to do it in a more seamless way. Thanks, guys, for that background. Let's jump into Aave Arc. Michael, you guys recently put out a proposal in late September on Aave's governance forums titled Add Fireblocks as a whitelister on Aave Arc. Can you talk a bit about what this proposal is and how Fireblocks is involved. Yeah, so I guess the title for the proposal is pretty straightforward. But, um, you know, the story with Avearc uh, or the story around Permission DeFi uh, goes, I think, to the to the essence, right, of uh, what does it mean for institutions and what do we need for institutions to have more, uh, to, you know, for institutions to have more adoption of DeFi. So, you know, for, for, I guess, you know, most of the people in the audience uh, 
we all recognize that DeFi, the power of DeFi is really that it's sort of this uh, permissionless, autonomous uh, capability to create uh, financial machinery that runs without uh, any intermediaries and, um, you know, with transparency and, and you know, guaranteed execution. Um, uh, well, this is like extremely compelling for pretty much anyone who uh, want to see financial innovation, including, by the way, a lot of the financial institutions. Um, they do view this as sort of the future and the ability to uh, disintermediate some of the legacy infrastructure that uh, sets them, uh, um, that basically holds them uh, behind, you know, some, some of the innovators. Um, the compliance issues and uh, and sanctions issues and and uh, and all the things that are related to um, you know regulatory clarity um, are currently uh, uh, preventing from all those financial institutions to actually participate. Right. So anyone who who has a, a, a license, uh, such as a money transmitter license or a trust license or, um, you know, clearly banking license uh, where they are required to apply KYC, AML, BSA procedures on the uh, entities that uh, they're servicing or their counterparties. Um, DeFi, uh, as, as it stands today, uh, introduces um, a pretty significant uh, uncertainty right because if you deposit something into a DeFi protocol and there is someone anonymous on the other side of it there is no way for you to guarantee that it's not someone who for example violates an OFAC uh, sanction right there you, you cannot guarantee that it's not someone from Iran or North Korea or whatnot and eventually you're at risk of being fined you're at risk of uh, losing your license and you know people financial institutions care a lot about their licenses um so to 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 sort of uh, figure out how to bring those two worlds together, um, what we've done with Ave um, is to say, okay, um, the, the the protocol itself, right? Ave been, I think it's the, right now the number one protocol. You know, fairly robust, troubleshooted. Um, um, uh, there is a lot of trust in uh, what they provided. How do we uh, create an environment? where institutions feel comfortable participating in and transacting with one another. And the answer for that is to basically create this sort of permission pool, right? So if you're entering into that pool and you uh, participating in that sort of subset of Aave, which is called Aave Arc, uh, you guaranteed um, uh, that you would interact with people that are uh, that pass the same KYC uh, screening as uh, you obligated to do. You don't know who you would basically be transacting with. It's still anonymous, uh, to, uh, but uh, you, you you at least guarantee that everyone that are in with you in that pool, um, they pass through the same level of screening, right? So what we've done, we basically went f- uh, to um, uh, some of our uh, um more regulated customers, right? You know, Genesis and and, and others that uh, are sort of on the uh, more institutionalized uh, side of the institutional market. And we worked with their general consuls and the compliance officers, and and we basically created a format or um, uh, a framework which uh, dictates how do we screen, how do we filter the people that are coming into the into the pool, and we are using um, a vehicle that we have inside of Fireblocks uh, to basically do that screening. Once those people were screened, um, those institutions were screened, we are essentially 
a whitelisting or basically provisioning their wallets to interact with their pool. So they can be lenders, they can be borrowers, they can be liquidators. But we, uh, through through this sort of mechanism of uh, the um, KYC and then the MPC wallets, we can guarantee that the people that are interacting on the uh, uh, both sides of the of the trade or both sides of the lending and borrowing market uh, are following with are, are are compliant with the general requirement of the group michael thanks for that comment it sounds like the regulatory sort of kyc aspect is a huge benefit to institutional players such as genesis um, ro from your perspective how do you expect rates between these private institutional pools and public pools to differ because they're separate pools like Aave on ETH is separate from Aave on L2 is separate from this institutional one. What are your thoughts around arbitrage opportunities around these different options? Do you think there's going to be overlap in participants? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, um, you know, at, maybe at the at the start when there's like a sort of large different in asset quantity between the two pools, you might see um, more arbitrage opportunities, but the, the interesting thing is like kind of a lot of the participants that are in the permissionless pools, um, are like regulated entities, especially ones with size. So they will, they will onboard to the permission pools and ensure that the two markets stay relatively in line. So I think, you know, one market might lead the other here and there, but generally the, the rates should be in line. Um, yeah, just given the overlap in participants. So is it fair to think about Ave Arc as a settlement layer? for the broader ecosystem? Well, for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess I could take this one first. I, I think um, this is actually what I was meant to allude to earlier, which is like, at the end of the day, like for the on-chain pools and the liquidity on screens that you get to see in terms of borrowing and lending, like, yes, the decentralized part is is important for, you know, resistance of the protocol to any sort of Sybil or government intervention or things like that. But at the end of the day, the most important part of it is the modularity and the, the fact that it's on screens and the fact that it's super easy to just click into a MetaMask and and be able to send and borrow. So the, the, the smoothness of settlement and kind of opening up the market so more people can see each other's sort of uh, axes and positions and collateral flows. I think that's like the, the real key driver here rather than being like, oh, this this needs to be made by a fully a non-decentralized team, you know? So the settlement and the modularity of it is really what drives it. This all goes back to another point that I wanted to bring up, which is institutional and KYC pools are somewhat of a controversial topic within crypto. Some people believe that the whole point of decentralized finance is to have open access for everyone and not to have KYC and certain closed off products and aspects that only a certain number of market participants can use. Not to mention sharing personal information, details to KYC, and other information that certain providers have access to. Michael, as the provider bringing these items and products to market, how would you respond to people that feel this way? No, first of all, I think they're right. <laughs> but uh, um, unfortunately, uh, there is the utopia and there is the reality, right? And the reality is that uh, uh, we have regulations. Um, you know, and even if we put the regulation aside for a second, uh, we still didn't solve uh, how the, the, the issue of how do we remove, identify, mitigate bad actors in uh, in the, this new financial world, right? It's still an open question. It's still a question that, you know, many great companies, you know, such as Chainalysis and Elliptic and CypherTrace and others 
are are working on right and uh, and and the combination of uh, of uh, those two realities is basically what makes uh, the fact that uh, well if we want institutional inflow then um, this is probably like you know the closest approximation that we can take to um, to start bringing this money in right I think that um, the the or, or my view is that it's a step right it's not the final solution for how um, KYC or how those pools will work in a year or a year and a half from now there are really interesting uh, companies that are working on much softer uh, software K- KYC solutions that uh, uh, probably will basically allow us to blend those two worlds but um, sort of to get this uh, party started and and get the the, the big institutional uh, money in this is like you know the, the the first approximation that we will start working from Um now I think that most of the people that basically believe in DeFi, they understand that uh, to bring as you know to bring as much participants as possible is is important, right? And um, and uh, that uh, there there is sort of a, a journey, right, to to get to the point where um, we have you know a very open ecosystem uh, which allows inclusion, right? Um, and I think that we basically. Right now we we have one side of that right now which is like you know the one extreme we will create now the other extreme and i think that over the next uh, say like you know, 12 18 24 months we will basically find a way to blend the two into uh, a point where i think both sides will be happy and honestly i think that regardless of how uh, this will have exactly will unfold in the next uh, in the in the near future um there will always be permissionless pools, uh, which will allow that interaction. Um, th- the main question is where it will be the bulk of the activity. Yep, makes a lot of sense. I think the the point you're getting at is that we can expect an evolution similar to the previous era of crypto brokerage, where you had on one of the spectrum projects and and products like local bitcoins, where there was really no bar to access them, and it was super easy, um, and and anyone around the world could use it. That was sort of the value prop. And then companies like Coinbase emerged to sort of professionalize that space, make it compliant, allow sort of more gated access, yes, but in a way that people could really use it at scale and with trust. And Michael, what were your thoughts going through the on-chain governance process for this? I imagine that it's pretty different from your normal enterprise B2B sales process. Yeah, very different. It was actually a very interesting experience for us. To be honest, I'm quite happy that we went through this experience uh, reasonably early, right? People that are familiar with some uh, of the methodologies uh, around enterprise software development or, or, or software development uh, in general, right? You have product managers, they speak with clients, they understand what they need to be built. Uh, we prioritize a sprint, we build it, we ship it, we market it, and uh, hopefully clients, uh, you know, adopt and use it. Uh, here, there was a, a very interesting process in which you sort of go through some of those 
phases, but then you actually need to go and put a memo in place before you launch and sort of expose the rationale and ask, you know, what is eventually a group of uh, anonymous and uh, at least like, you know, random people that they might have uh, an interest in the offering. They might not have an interest in the offering. They might uh, have uh, like a, an opposite agenda of uh, what you're trying to, to promote. And you basically need to convince them to give you the green light to to launch it and to to bring it into production. Um, and that's an interesting process. I think that there is a lot of lesson learned for us of how to do it in a more uh, streamlined way. But nevertheless, I think that in some ways it, it's it's a process that creates that for financial pro- products specifically, it creates the transparency and debate that uh, is potentially missing from the way that uh, things are being done in the traditional market, right? I mean, you know, even if you think about uh, the recent news around the ETF, right? You know, people went, they went for, uh, they created the product, they went to the SEC, they fought hard, they got approval, right? But, uh, you know, no one asked the, the the Bitcoin community if they want to see an ETF or they don't, right? And it might be interesting to actually create a poll and see how many people supporting it and how many people objecting it. I assume like, you know, most people would support it, but uh, um, it just is maybe like, you know, to give the sort of extreme example of uh, how it would look like if you actually had to go through this process with some of the more uh, traditional uh, traditional projects. And to the extent that you can share, Michael, what kinds of assets do you plan on supporting or, or are interested in, in terms of Aave Arc? Because for Aave, there's this pretty uh, lengthy and, and well-publicized process of adding new assets and how those collateral factors and sort of parameters are adjusted. Um, what will this look like for Aave Arc? Will it be the same? Will it be different? Yeah, so to be honest, I'm not in the in the details of uh, the parameters and the and uh, how exactly it's going to be to function. This is much more on the Ave side uh, of the house in terms of uh, what they are planning to do uh, or how the how they built. But in in essence, it's actually the the, the protocol itself, the the market, the the most of the parameters should be equivalent to the um, to the to the uh, public uh, markets uh, that they that uh, Ave has, um, what was important for us uh, at at the stage where we were building uh, what we were when we are basically gearing up to the beta testing of it is actually to create uh, what we call like a healthy market, right? So to make sure that we bring enough. Uh, um, lenders, enough borrowers, enough liquidators, right? And the liquidators are really important in something like Ave uh, to the table uh, and make sure that they go through the KYC process and they become participants. Um, so that's something that we were very mindful mi- m- mindful of uh, to make sure that uh, maybe like, you know, on a much smaller scale than the, the uh, permissionless pool, but the ratios and the uh, type of participants um, should create a, a healthy market. And, and Ro, we've talked about what you're most excited about with Ave Arc. After it launches, let's say it takes off and people start using it, what do you see next happening? Like, what do you see the downstream effects towards DeFi being? Do you see other protocols sort of thinking about this? Maybe AMMs, maybe derivatives. Um, what are the what might happen in like six months or a year? 
after this launches and works. Yeah, it's an interesting um, kind of a uh, uh, series of sort of domino effects that, that could happen there. And I think it, <laughs> they'll almost all come full circle, which is, um, you know, uh, Ave Arc, uh, you know, I think it's the first of many of its style in the sense that like, you know, you can have permission pools, permission trading pairs, AMMs, uh, borrow lend pools, um, you know, other sort of uh, functions of, of DeFi, NFT marketplaces, whatever it might be. Um, and, and when you start to really dissect as to what that looks like, well, what is a permissioned sort of Uniswap or Sushi Swap look actually look like on chain? It's basically like an exchange, but if it were on chain and then like, I think that analogy could be extended a lot further where it's like a lot of things that are just nice to have a track record of everything that has ever happened. And assuming that Ethereum can get cheap enough or Arbitrum or something scales enough where, you know, it's, it's trivial enough to, to spend money on transactions. Um, you know, a lot more just things that we do in a centralized way will still be centralized, but also on chain and in, a, in the modular stack. Which I think that's like the sort of you you said like six months out or one year. I think that's maybe like a four or five year, potentially even ten year uh, trend there. But yeah, the general gist of thoughts is Ave Arc, then a bunch of other ones do it. A lot of DeFi and a lot of centralized stuff starts being on chain in the in the same KYC AML way, and then you start to see more and more interesting centralized services uh, be on chain, and then you know users can still switch and. Uh, oscillate easily between permissionless and permission pools. It's just the permission ones, you know, they'll be, they'll be, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have a subset of them that they've onboarded to or that the the protocol has whitelisted. Um, and hopefully that's not too much of a break, but I think it'll, it'll be a pretty exciting sort of a series of events that could cascade from this. So Michael, with Ave Arc coming out and Fireblocks getting more deeply involved in DeFi, does this mean that we'll see Fireblocks being more active in the governance process for Ave itself, like being active in the forums, potentially voting. Um, I guess same applies to, to you, Ro, for Genesis. For us, we were active on the forums, on the different channels. We became much more active on DeFi as a whole. I think the interesting thing about uh, sort of working with DeFi is that uh, it changes your uh, uh, modus operandi in some ways uh, of how you interact with uh, partners. It's not like uh, that you email people. You need to go on Discord and and uh, and talk with the community and talk with uh, the developers of uh, some of those protocols. Whether you find bugs or you have suggestions or you have uh, need to adjustments to be made. So um, some of those things, uh, you know, are uh, uh, interesting transitions or interesting. Uh, uh, phenomena that we've seen, uh, you know, with us over the last uh, several months. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for us in terms of like interacting directly on on governance proposals and whatnot, I think that'll come in probably when, uh, you know, if we're looking for some sort of uh, direct like sort of uh, loan or or uh, potentially undersecured loan from from one of these pools, like you know, you kind of have to say who you are, make a case for yourself, and then. Um, not really sure exactly how the governance would work in terms of allocating to that, but you kind of see it on other protocols, how like a firm will come in and be like, Hey, uh, we are X, Y, and Z, and we are seeking this for this term. And this is why, you know, we're credit worthy and not going to default on you. Um, you know, I think that that's kind of where I, I see us at the, at the first level coming in because, um, a lot, a lot of DeFi right now is just over secured and it's just capital inefficient. 
And uh, I think the the undersecured stuff is uh, is an exciting way to kind of get more um, capital efficiency out of the out of these sort of protocols. Um, in terms of like directing the development of of, of a protocol on chain through governance proposals, like that's less so our bread and butter, more so because we try to stay relatively agnostic and uh, kind of just you know let the market evolve and and uh, plug into things as they exist rather than trying to like, you know, convince, uh, token holders to vote in one way to our advantage or something like that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think under collateralized loans have been a long desired idea for for crypto. We have some iterations of this, like creams iron bank with protocol, protocol borrowing. What are your thoughts on the things that governance and token holders will, will really care the most about when evaluating just as an example, a participant that wants to borrow under collateralized? It depends uh, on the sort of uh, participant and, and protocols like sort of function there. There's two ways to go about it. Like one is like, one is the way that makes more sense in the OTC model, which is you fully kind of like say your address is this entity and this is like what we do. And this is how, um, how many like you know loans we've made historically maybe like an anonymized loan book or some sort of data uh out there to support um your creditworthiness and something of that nature and and uh that kind of you know everyone kind of knows who that is or maybe there's a public rating agency or something of the sort that uh can can kind of stamp a label of of authority on there the other way is more like a more permissionless way of doing it which is like using an address that has that has had a significant history uh, engaging with DeFi and and lending pools, like you can effectively create a credit score from their entire history, which is like looking at how often they borrow, how much leverage do they use, how close they are to liquidation, what kind of top ups do they do if the market falls, and um, what do they what is the use case of the proceeds when they borrow from pools and things like that, and then you can construct a, a credit factor associated with that. Um, and then I think you know that that'll be an interesting way of of you know, and, and I don't I don't necessarily think that Ave or any of the lending pools themselves have to be the ones that construct this. Like there could be other protocols that do this, and they can just pipe in the data. But then once you have that, and then you could add a layer on top of that of like, hey, if there's NFTs in this address that are docs, then I know who this is, or I know at least which a non-profile on Twitter this is. You know, there's a little bit of added layer of comfort there. I think those are the ways that you know two different ways you can edit uh sort of evaluate credit and and undersecured lending on change so like the first way completely otc very similar to the existing method the second way is more like uh taking the history and tools that we have here and, and using that to make like a, a a viable credit model yeah i think the idea of an on-chain credit scoring passport identity there's been lots of conversations and ideas around how to do this for both your average retail user um, as well as more sophisticated participants. But yeah, I think it's a super, maybe it'll be completely decentralized. Maybe it'll be done through service providers. Maybe it'll be a hybrid, but I think it's definitely an area to watch. And I think like this this line of thought is sort of goes back to something that um, I talked about in my previous podcast, which is, the creation of the beta DAO service category, like I had Gauntlet on last time to talk about their risk monitoring contract with Compound. It's an $8 million a year contract to perform risk monitoring. And we're now seeing on protocols like DYDX, 
market makers post governance proposals like here's who we are here's ho- here's what we're doing here's the value we provide um and here's what we're looking for in terms of needs for liquidity and yeah like potentially genesis and other participants in the future um for other kinds of borrowing so i think it just comes back to regardless of what your company's focus is if you're a market participant in crypto you're inevitably going to have to to think about how to engage with governance because DAOs have a huge pool of capital and they have like in some ways they are some of the biggest or maybe the biggest user um, in crypto there's a lot of steps that need to happen before a, a DAO at scale like Uniswap or Compound or or Wi-Fi can make these kinds of votes and decisions in a really effective sort of measured way. But I think that's the path that we're that we're going after. And I think that's super cool. So my last question to you two is if I'm an average crypto user listening to this podcast, I've made a few trades on Uniswap, maybe experimented with Aave and Compound, and I hold some tokens. How will Aave Arc affect me? How will institutional tools affect me? Will it be how will this huge inflow of of capital affect me in any any way, whether it's rates or the user experience or just the general scale? So maybe I'll start. Um, I think that this this is essentially going to be the most interesting part of the experiment, right? To see how it 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 is going to affect. And honestly, I don't think we know uh, until we will launch it and we'll see what happens after a few months. Um, I don't think it will, the effect will not be on day one, right? Generally speaking, I think every allocation of uh, capital into, into the space was, uh, was positive and uh, it, it will probably increase the liquidity in the market. I don't know if they, it might change the rates a bit, if there will be more people that are participating. But overall, I think it will just increase the development and the robustness of those protocols. Yeah, um, I tend to agree where it's like, it's a little bit unknown. But what I do know is that it it feels like it, it's not going to happen overnight and, and super fast, even day one of Aave Arc launching. And then on, in terms of rates, like on the lending side, uh, maybe that's where I can speak the most uh, to this. It's like, yeah, you in theory, you sh- it, depending on how much goes into Aave Arc, like you should potentially see rates compress a bit depending on which asset comes in there. Like let's say it's USDC. Cause even if like the, um, the, uh, the, the participants that are lending into Aave Arc or supplying liquidity there aren't going to go do the most like sort of degenerate things with high APY, uh, elsewhere, you will have sort of bridge trading firms and users that are engaged in both that will take the liquidity from Aave Arc and then use it to um, farm or do something else. And then as a average user, your yields might be uh, reduced potentially. Um, but I think it all depends really on what kind of inflow numbers you see. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to monitor. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. So we'll have some time to kind of digest and think about it and see. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ro and Michael, for coming on today. I'm super excited to see what happens over the coming weeks and months with Aave Arc and to see the downstream effects that it has on the broader DeFi ecosystem. Thanks again for coming on and looking forward to revisiting this in the coming months. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Derek, thanks for having me.